to um, bring the message to you today. And I'm going to continue in the sermon series in Philippians. So if you want to get your Bibles ready for that, we're going to be at the very end of chapter 2, verses 25 and 30. And if you're using the Black Pew Bible, I think I remember it's page 981. I looked at it right before I came up here. Have you ever wondered what the purpose is of suffering and why we experience pain? And why, have you ever asked yourself the question, why would God create a world where we had to experience pain and suffering? Well, when you're in some sort of pain, whether it's uh, physical, emotional, spiritual, and you're in the middle of these circumstances, what are you inclined to do? What is your first go-to? Is it complaining? Is it grumbling? Or do you see this as an opportunity? Do you see God at work in the middle of pain and suffering in the world around us? You know, God has obviously designed us as finite, frail people. We're not infinite. Our bodies have a limited time, and they hurt. And our minds hurt. And our spirits can hurt. I mean, life can be extremely painful. And it's very difficult for us to see what in the world the point is of all the pain sometimes. You know, and another fact is that God apparently designed us to be humble, but we're not very humble sometimes either. He gave us these frail bodies to experience pain in order to remind us of something in order to remind us of a dependency on him that we forget, that we often don't remember. And in the painful moments, it might not be that easy for us to remember what God is doing through it. Sometimes when we get to the end of a situation, we see it and we go, aha, that was visible. I see that and I understand it and I get it. Oftentimes, more than likely, you don't. And you just sit there wondering, what was all that about? Why did I just go through all that? You know, more than likely, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, my suffering sucks. I just want to get out of it. I know that's my case, I admit. And we just don't care what God might be doing or how others might be benefiting from from our pain and suffering, actually. But even in our pain, God is at work. In our suffering, God is at work. And he's using it. He's hopefully growing our dependency upon him and growing our humiliation, which is a good thing. So, so far in the book of Philippians, you've heard several sermons up to this point. Uh, We're at the end of chapter 2 now, getting um, about halfway through the book. You've heard a very didactic list of commands and encouragements. The book of Philippians is an extremely encouraging book, and it's meant to be that way. Paul is writing this as a letter to the Philippian church. These very specific things that he normally wants to cover and topics that he wants to include in his letters. And so far, we've seen ways that Christians can live joyfully with one another, even in spite of very difficult circumstances. 
But today's text shifts a little bit away from his normal flow of an epistle, of didactic list of things that Paul is very known for. And we see a narrative, all of a sudden stuck right in the middle of his lists. And a lot of times when we see this, we, we just sort of read it and move on. We don't really know what to do with it. In fact, to preach it is, is kind of difficult when you've gone through a list of things that are very easy to bullet point. So I'll use that as, a, as an indication that this is not a typical three-point sermon. For those of you who like to keep notes, there will be some notes. But this is going to be a little bit of a different style, a little bit of a different setup, because it's a different kind of text. But I thought it would be helpful for us to look at these last five verses in chapter 2 with the whole previous chapter, chapter 2, in context. And I want to do this through the lens of human suffering because that's really the reason that he brings up this tiny little narrative, this little story. It's just a little story of the suffering of one man that we can learn a lot from. And then we can look back on and reflect at this entire chapter because what he's been doing, he's been laying the groundwork. Uh, Caleb and Kyle have preached on this over the past several weeks. And uh, I think it's laid the groundwork for now this case study that we see him uh, document right here in this tiny little narrative. You see, God provides servants of Christ suffering situations to drive them to dependency upon himself through gospel partnerships with other believers. We're not meant to just stay alone in those things. And the easiest thing for us to do sometimes is to want to withdraw when we're suffering. But no, it's meant to drive us into gospel partnerships, which is really what Paul is saying to do throughout this entire book, is to rejoice with one another. he, He repeats it over and over again. You see, suffering isn't pointless cruelty that it seems to us sometimes. And, as this text commands us, we must honor those who we see suffering for the mission of Christ. All right, let's read the text. And I'm actually going to read the entire chapter. It's not very long, but I thought it would be helpful for us to understand why I'm saying this is important for the entire context of the chapter. So start with me in verse 1 of chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, 
but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so you too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now here's our passage for today. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my fellow brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray before we move on. Our holy and gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today asking for your guidance and direction as we enter into your word in this time. God, that you would help us to see in some even small way or in big ways or because you work in small and big ways what it means to be suffering servants for the sake of Christ and how to honor those, how to acknowledge and love them. God, help us to take away from this message today something that the Holy Spirit can use in our life even today or tomorrow as we go out into the mission field as we've been hearing about here with the Lottie Moon offering and with the many, many opportunities we have right here in our own back door with the nations that live even in this town. Lord, help us to see that you purpose all things for a specific reason, for a mission and a purpose that you understand that we cannot. So Lord, I just pray for your, for your grace today. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, as I said, suffering is the lens through which I've decided to view this passage because it's seen all throughout this entire section and it really is the way Paul was living. He's actually living in jail during this time, probably in Rome. Um, so he's actually literally living in some type of suffering as he's writing this letter. But you know, you know it's there. You don't actually hear him speak of it or complain about it. But it's kind of interwoven through the, entire, uh, through the entire text. And all the questions that we have about suffering and the things that we bring to the table and we want to know why God, you know, why does it seem so endless and 
relentless. There's a lot of questions that we have about suffering. But there's really only one thing I want to try to accomplish in this time here is what the attitude is that we should have in light of this text. That when we approach any kind of suffering, how, do we, how should we view it? What should our attitude really be? And Martin, I hope you can kind of keep up with me. I'm sorry. Because like I said, the first little section doesn't have main points. Um, we can go ahead and play the... Okay, there you go. So suffering, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual, they're all very difficult and something we always try to avoid. And we probably spend a lot of money to be comfortable, don't we? I mean, think about it. Think about our own homes, the couches and the cars that we drive. You know, I mean, even my old beat-up Ford truck, which you've seen me drive, is way more comfortable than I deserve. (laughs) I think that when I get in and I drive it. I, I I don't feel like... Well, no, I should say this differently. I I want a nicer truck. I really do. I want to be more comfortable when I have to go out and start it when it's 10 degrees and scrape the windshield. I wish I had a garage I could pull it into. I don't want to suffer that way. I hate cold weather. And you guys know I do, but... Sorry, I digress. We don't like suffering. We don't like discomfort and pain. And there's something about it that's uncontrollably humiliating, isn't it? We can't control our suffering. We might think we can by buying comforts and over-the-counter medicine or getting you know, therapy, even numbing it in certain ways or just ignoring it. But we ultimately cannot control our suffering And through it, we are humbled even to the point of death. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, so Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count himself equal with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, okay? Taking the form of a servant. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Because he didn't think he was equal with God. So, keep that in mind as we go through this. Jesus' example of true humility. Even though he was God, he didn't think he was equal to God. And I think that was a real source of the strength that he had, that we cannot seem to grasp to, um, and we fail under. And even Paul struggled many times through his own suffering and ultimately got a trial uh, for his situation because of his imprisonment. He didn't really even see the need for his own suffering. I'm not saying that we should want to suffer. That's not the point. The point is, suffering does happen in a lot of different ways. And even back to Jesus, who was tempted in every single way we are, and even more because he did not sin, said, on the night before he died, Father, take this cup from me. Even Jesus wasn't sure that he wanted to suffer, or that he could. And so we want to avoid it at all costs. Because we feel it seems to somehow take us away from uh, what we should be doing 
we feel weak, uh, we're tired, um, we feel entitled. Well, I don't deserve suffering. Why is this happening to me? Those are the questions I always ask myself, and I think are common to everyone. Um, but notice what Christ said, or what, what was said about Christ. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Even though he, he may have struggled with the same thoughts and feelings, and Paul struggled with the same thoughts and feelings, and Epaphroditus and Timothy would have too, Jesus, we see, emptied himself, had no sense of entitlement. Even though he was God himself in flesh, could have had it all removed. But it was through suffering and the torment and the torture that gained us the freedom. So what is the point of the suffering? How do we suffer well? How do we suffer joyfully? And I think that's what this scripture and many others, this isn't the only place that you can find this throughout Scripture, is pointing us toward. And again, I'm going to try to attempt to help us see one thing about all this, is what uh, our attitude must be as we, as we are faced with some type of suffering. Help, and help us to have a better understanding, of a, a better scriptural understanding, and an attitude that we must embrace about our own suffering, which will come in different forms, in different fashions. And, it, and it's different for all of us, even though it's, a, it's almost like a shared human experience. Because we're all suffering in some ways. I think one of the funnest types of suffering is cold weather because we're like, we can talk about it. It's something we share and have in common. We all have to scrape our windows in the morning, those who park their cars outside. And then furthermore, I want us to be obedient to the only command that we actually see in this, in this text is that we may rejoice with those who suffer. Isn't that interesting? And then receive them with the Lord. I'm sorry, receive them in the Lord with all joy and honor, honor these people. And then I want to talk about a little bit who Paul is talking about here, who these suffering servants are. So I'm convinced that if we see suffering circumstances as God's provision for our dependence upon him, and suffering as useful toward God's mission towards to others and to the world and his mission to the world through us, we'll have a completely different attitude about our suffering. may not feel any better, but I pray and hope, even for myself, that we'll see that and have a better attitude in the middle of it and not grumble and not complain as Paul has asked us not to do. That's why he says this. He doesn't just say that earlier on in isolation of this, that, that command goes right along with the situation that he's talking about right here. To not grumble and dispute, but be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So the two things that I, I mentioned about God's provision and God's mission, we see this as his provision to the church here in this passage by using Epaphroditus. This man, who was really only mentioned maybe two other times in Scripture, was a servant of Paul from Philippi. And he was sent by the church to bring a gift, money or something, to Paul. And along the way, he fell ill, got sick. Maybe, I, we don't know, it doesn't say this, maybe he even got attacked. We don't know, because he does talk about in the very next section, 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. It could be that he got attacked by someone. I don't, we don't know. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just sort of speculating. But he is ill, and he almost died. That was God's provision through him to the church and to himself because he brought this gift from the church of Philippi to Paul. And I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into what God's provision is below the surface, or maybe even a grander vision of his provision, is that through this situation, we get to see a bigger picture of what Christ-like humility is in, in suffering. In the fact that Epaphroditus and Paul both were being poured out like a drink offering, he even says. Which was an Old Testament Jewish type of uh, sacrifice, pouring out wine upon the altar was done with animal sacrifice as a way to symbolize a life being poured out for service to God. Now, neither one of them are, are actually deceased here yet, but their lives are being poured out in sacrifice. And then the other thing we see in this situation is God's mission. It's not pointless. God is on mission through this situation. And this circumstance even showcases the glory of God in bringing this miraculous healing to Epaphroditus. And he becomes a walking testimony to God's power and God's glory. So how much more powerful now is this situation that seemed like if you were in the middle of it, like, God, what's happening? I'm bringing this gift to Paul and now I'm, I'm falling ill and I'm, you know, Epaphrod imagine Epaphroditus now feel, you know, what he must feel like. He was probably questioning what is going on I'm serving why am I now dying he almost dies but God has mercy on him and saves his life and now Paul is going to send him back to the church of Philippi how much more miraculous is this mission of God now the Epaphroditus is a walking testimony to the miraculous healing of God it makes this whole story so much more meaningful, doesn't it? God can work through this seemingly impossible circumstance to carry out a greater purpose that we don't initially see. And maybe digging even a little bit deeper into the situation, we see God's mission again in this man and Paul and the church's dependency upon God. That, again, is part of God's mission. It's kind of all mixed up with his provision, too, because he provides these situations. But it's also his mission to cause us to be so dependent on him that we have to pray. We have to depend on one another. And without the pain of this situation, we and, you know, maybe even Paul and the church could have easily slipped right into self-sufficiency mode. It's like fish to water. We need God for life in every way possible. And we oftentimes don't even really notice that or see it or acknowledge it. And I'm saying this to myself, too. You see, this is God's mission. We are finite tools. God loves us as individuals, but we are all together being used as individual components 
in a far greater picture than we can even imagine. I know a lot of us wake up and think we're the biggest thing that exists because we're thinking about ourselves all the time. Um, but God can use situations to humble us to realize we're not the biggest thing that exists. We are here, in fact, to carry out, to help. If we're willing and able and humble, he will use us to carry out this mission. But you might be asking yourself the same question I was. Why would, why would a loving God allow pain? Doesn't that just seem cruel? Why can't he just use supernatural powers to, you know, remove the pain? Why does it have to be so hard? Doesn't God feel bad for us? that we're suffering? Doesn't God know? Doesn't he care that we suffer? And he seems to be in his eternal glory? Do you guys have these questions in your mind? Like, doesn't God realize the pain that I'm in and the suffering that we're in and see the you know, anguish that goes on everywhere around us? And we begin to question the same question that came up for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Doesn't God really care about me? God does care. God does feel your pain. In fact, God has been humbled more than you or I ever will be. And he does comprehend the depth of our suffering, even more. Because God became man, he took on our limited flesh. And he lived a suffering life more so than you or I will ever, po ever possibly comprehend. And when he was alive, he had started to gain some notoriety and some fame in his region, and people wanted to make him a king. They loved his words so much because he had, they noticed he had power and they could do something for him. But he didn't trust men. He knew better than our motivations. And then, in the most intense suffering and pain imaginable, Jesus, who was God in flesh, experienced the most excruciatingly soul-searing pain of separation from the Father who is in heaven. And don't tell me you don't think that would be painful to the Father. That separation from the Son, who He had known for all eternity, had never seen separation, ever. They had never experienced that. So don't tell me the Father doesn't experience pain. And Jesus doesn't experience pain. This was torment. For even a moment, it was torment. It was excruciating. And then this death on the cross separated the Son from the Father. But eternally perfected the relationship with sinners, with the God for all eternity, for all time. 
So what seemed eternal really was momentary for the Son. And it was worth it to him. So the next time, the next time I, the next time you struggle with the thought that why doesn't God seem to care or feel or know or do something about my pain, he has in the Son. And he knows and he feels pain. And he cares. So God knows your pain. And we can see this right here in the text. You don't have to go very far outside of this text to see it. It said, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was pain and suffering for a reason that had eternal weight of glory for you. I cannot answer how you, hand, you should handle your specific painful situation. That is for you to seek wisdom from others. And I ask others to enter into your painful situations with you. Don't isolate yourself. Let other people rejoice in that suffering with you. But I can say Jesus does care. He has suffered and he is suffering with you. And what does Paul say? Back in chapter 2, he says, do this all without grumbling or disputing. Now that's hard to go through pain without grumbling or disputing. I would say impossible for me. So what we've seen thus far is that um, God is with us. Okay? And whatever we, whether we see our pain and suffering as good or bad, how we react, however we feel, however we're, struggle, however we're struggling, whatever we think about the pain and suffering, how we react, how we react, I'm sorry, is up to us, right? We can backbite, we can argue, we can grumble and complain, but Paul is saying, submit to God. Not perfectly. We can't do this perfectly, but God is going to humble us through these situations and cause us to dependency upon him. So let's look a little bit more specifically about what this text is actually saying about some of these, uh, about the servants of God, the servants of Christ. So who are these servants? Well, I'm going to attempt to kind of synthesize the definition from this text, but they are humble, others-minded servants who seek a one mind in Christ for the church kind of attitude. That's the kind of attitude that, that Paul is, is explaining here of, this, of the servant like Epaphroditus who nearly died for the work of Christ. And it just seems, the, this definition seems to point us to a joyful, Christ-like sufferer. So how do we live this way? This is not natural to us, Right? I tried to come up with a couple of ideas. Maybe you, maybe you got, you got, I'm sure you guys can elaborate on this. But one of the first things that came to my mind for some reason when I started asking myself, how do we live like one of these sufferers, is be willing to take a risk. 
Get out of your comfort zone. Do something different once in a while. Be willing to be challenged. Do something you're not comfortable with. Learn, ask questions. And don't worry about trying to be perfect because you will begin to make small achievements and God will begin using these things in his larger mission. But know that if you have a desire to be a servant of Christ, which in fact, if you are a Christ follower, you already are, but if you have a greater desire to serve, take a close look at what happens to Christ's servants and weigh the cost and what it means to actually be a humble, others-minded, Christ-seeking servant. Because it's not going to make you feel good about yourself most days. It's probably going to feel uh, to your ego, to your emotions, a little out of place. And that's hard on us. That's hard. I, I, I can empathize with that. But this is the kind of life that Paul seemed to live, that Timothy and Epaphroditus seemed to live, that he, Paul is saying to this church, empath- uh, sorry, live like these guys. Use these guys as examples. Epaphroditus nearly died for your sake. Here's Paul's example of himself from Acts 20. He says, But I do not account my life any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul didn't, Paul didn't account his life as anything, he says. He said, I did not account my life as any value or precious to myself, only that he may finish the course that Christ gave him. You see, Paul is a great one to emulate. Again, not perfect. But Paul was a great one to emulate because he did not feel that his life was even important to himself. Christ's servants are also very hardworking individuals. He says in 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister. How many points is that for? Brother, fellow worker, soldier, messenger, minister. He, I mean, he just piles these on, one after another. This, this guy, Epaphroditus, is somehow a very hardworking individual for this missionary's sake. So fellow worker is someone who Paul is just working alongside with in this unified effort. A fellow soldier is this laborer. You get this picture of someone who is fighting alongside you in this battle for the cause of Christ. And then messenger, he's a gospel bearer. Or literally, um, for the church of Philippi, he, he was a messenger of this gift to Paul. Now he's going to be a messenger back carrying this letter after he nearly died. And then a minister, which here literally means servant. So Paul is indicating that these people are incredibly dedicated, selfless servants. Again, not perfect. Not in any way perfect. So... None of this indicates some type of mental assent to serving spiritually. These are, this is real. I mean, what Paul is describing here is, is real hard, life-risking, hands-on work. 
that requires this ongoing dependence upon God. Because as I've said, it's going to cause suffering. This type of lifestyle causes suffering. And what he says to do is to honor these people. We must honor these people that we see suffering tirelessly. How do we do that? Well, we can acknowledge them. Just let them know how much you appreciate and love them, the things you see them doing, and how the things that they're doing is causing you to grow and being stretched, and, and how much more you know about Christ, and how, how much more you are now willing to strive alongside them as a fellow soldier. We want to speak encouraging words into these people's lives. Because it will spur them on. It's happened to me. You have spurred me on in different ways. I have seen you spur others on. I have seen this happen in so many different ways. And it is sometimes the only encouragement you get. And it feels really refreshing. So do that often. Make that a habit as people of Christ. As fellow soldiers with one another. And then... Rejoice over them. He says to rejoice at seeing him. We are a unified body in Christ. And not, not, not any of us really get the same opportunities as everyone else. But when we see someone else doing something that we're not equipped to do, and you see them, you see them in the, you know, succeed in some way, in some glorious you know, victory of Christ. Maybe someone comes to Christ. Maybe someone comes to church. Maybe they get to share the gospel with a friend on campus. Whatever it is, rejoice with these people. Because in some small way, they really did probably feel even a twinge of some type of suffering through through that striving. So just rejoice in seeing what people are doing. It is encouraging. I was going to ask Shelby if I could use her as an example, but she's not even here today. But... I just think about the, um, the prayer meeting where she came and we got to hear her talk about her trip to, ba- to Bangladesh. And it was just, it was, it was like rejoicing with her even though we weren't there. We got to see what she had done on slides and see pictures and hear stories of some pretty miraculous things and ways that God used them and her in this trip in ways they didn't even, they couldn't have predicted. And make this a priority, he says in verse 28. He uses the word anxious, but don't confuse that with worrying because it's just, he's eager, he says. Paul is eager to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, which is also a selfless act in itself because Paul really needed help. He was in prison. He needed help in prison, but he's willing to send Timothy and Epaphroditus back to this church, which was a selfless act in itself instead of keeping him for his own purposes. He's putting into practice everything that he just said leading up to this. And he's regarding others more important uh, than himself. So make it a habit to do these things frequently and, and make it a priority. Look for these opportunities. Acknowledge, acknowledge people you see suffering. Acknowledge your friends, even if the suffering you see them in doesn't even seem to really amount to much. You know, they're probably looking for someone to just come alongside them. So these few verses here about Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're just a small case study 
of a, a lifetime of ministry, uh, Paul and all these men that were serving alongside him as fellow workers. And it's such a cool snapshot of just one day, one, you know, or one situation and, 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 and sort of this like list mode of things that we ought to be doing as a church. And we get to see these are real people doing real things and, and suffering in, in light of it. And it's not perfect. This was the passage I was looking for earlier. Uh, in 2.13, he, he says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who's going to work out the end purpose, the end goal. It is his mission. We're not, we, you know, I think we get all worked up in, in a frenzy sometimes. Like, you know, how is this going to turn out? Or what's the outcome going to be? Or how many people are going to turn out? Or, you know, let God be the one who uses that situation, even if it seems tiny, for his greater mission. We should honor those servants who God generously provides to risk everything for the sake of Christ, with the goal to help us maintain a healthy view of what it means to suffer in honorable service to Jesus, right where we are, right in our circumstances, right where you live, right in your neighborhood, right in your work, right with your family, right with your extended family. We need to honor those that we see. We need to honor those we see who are suffering for the sake of Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you provide all things for your glory, even determining that suffering would be the best means to direct us to humble dependence upon you. Thank you that you generously give self-denying servants to serve Christ and his church so others may know him and bring you glory. I pray that this would be our ambition. I pray that we too would look to be suffering servants for the case of Christ and be willing to risk and to serve for him. And I pray for those that do this, that we would honor them as they deserve. Lord, thank you for your sacrificial love to the church, dying for us on the cross and paying the price for our eternal soul's salvation, that you suffered much for our sake. And I pray that we would love others in the way that you do. I pray that we would hold you high, make much of you, and less of ourselves. Thank you so much, Lord, that you use us and that we are meaningful to you and that our suffering is not in vain. And I pray that you would be doing something through that and that we would be willing to work alongside others daily and depend on you for life and godliness. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.